0: What's well, it's my joy to open God's Word with you today for the third and final week of our study of the biblical theme of the spirituality of the wilderness. Over the last couple of weeks, we've learned a lot about this theme, and we've learned that in life, when we are walking through the wilderness, through seasons of pain and struggle and loneliness and temptation... We do not walk alone. God's grace comes near to us in the wilderness. Jesus walks with us through the wilderness, and He wants to use these painful times of our life to heal us, to transform us, and to prepare us for creative work, creative ministry, participating in His redemptive purpose in the world. And today, I have more good news to add to that good news. The title of my message today is, After the Wilderness. And what we get to celebrate today is the the biblical truth that God is not going to leave us in the wilderness forever. Jesus walks with us through the wilderness, but he's going to lead us out of the wilderness. And after the wilderness comes the promised land. Now I hope somebody on the other side of the screen is saying amen on their couch right now. Because what I just said means that the pain and the struggle of life is temporary. Jesus will walk with us through the pain of the wilderness, but he's going to lead us out of the wilderness. So today we get to talk about hope. And we get to talk about hope in a way that doesn't cause us to sort of imagine that we can escape the pain of the wilderness, but it gives us courage and joy to keep walking with God living with dignity and loving people, even in the midst of the wilderness. Now, without further ado, I'm going to invite you to join me in directing our attention to Psalm 107. This is a beautiful psalm. It's a long psalm, so I'm not going to read the whole thing right now for the sake of time, though I would encourage you to read and study the whole thing this week. But look with me first at the last verse of this psalm. Psalm 107 ends with verse 43, which says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. In other words, it's calling the wise to think carefully about what the psalm has just said. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, I start with that last verse of the psalm because it's telling us that this is a wisdom psalm, it's inviting us to read the psalm slowly to study it, to think about it, to meditate on it, and to use the psalm as a tool to help us meditate on the steadfast love of God for the purpose of being transformed by the knowledge of God's love so that we can share in the spiritual wisdom of Jesus. So with that thought in mind, let's look now at the first few verses of this psalm, which sort of set the stage for everything that follows. The psalm starts like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So verse one here invites us to practice the spiritual discipline of gratitude. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. It's saying slow down in your life. Pause. Think about God's love. Think about God's goodness in all the ways that he has shown mercy to you and just say thank you. And I want to Say to you, friends, everybody who's watching this video, that in my own spiritual life, I think one of the things God has been teaching me is that when I wake up every morning and go to bed every night pausing to give God thanks for some of the innumerable ways that He's shown His love to me, that, that spiritual exercise opens up my heart to live with joy. And and that experience of rejoicing in the love of God, celebrating God's goodness, actually then frees me up to love other people and live with compassion. So that's that's what's happening here. We're being invited to celebrate God's grace. When verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, what it means is if God has rescued you from trouble, don't be quiet about it. Celebrate it. Tell somebody about how God has saved your life and how he's been good to you. And then it says, More specifically, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So if God has rescued you from any kind of trouble, give thanks to him and tell somebody about God's grace. The rest of the psalm talks about different kinds of people whom God has rescued from different kinds of trouble. And in in the psalm, we see God rescues us from spiritual trouble, forgiving us of our sins. God rescues us from psychological trouble, reaching down to us in the midst of our anxiety and fear and depression and comforting us and healing us. And He can bring us out of dark places. And He can walk with us through dark places. God also rescues us from physical trouble. He saves His people from danger in in so many ways. When verse 3 says, It talks about those who are gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. This gives us a clue to the original context in which this psalm was written. Psalm 106, the psalm right before this, had included a prayer that was written when God's people were in exile. The Jews had been scattered and they were in exile and they were crying out to God, bring us back home to our home in Jerusalem. And apparently, Psalm 107 was written after they came back home from exile, and now they're saying, Thank you, God. You heard our prayer. You answered our prayer. You brought us back to our home. Now, Christians can read this psalm as our own in a beautiful way, because in the New Testament, we find this, this theme of rescue from exile uh, repeatedly applied to the Christian experience, that Jesus is rescuing us and bringing us home to God. And I was just thinking about how beautiful it is that God really has gathered people from the north, the south, the east, and the west. I just got to put on the screen for a second something. This is a a page from the Pew Research Group's um, massive study of global religions. And it shows us something about the ethnic and the geographic breakdown of each of the major religions uh, religions and something I want you to see that's so beautiful about the Christian community is that there is no ethnic majority group within the Christian community. Christian people are made up of all kinds of different uh, language groups and cultural groups and ethnic groups and there's actually not a geographic center for the Christian movement either. We're dispersed all over the north, the south, the east, And the West. As a matter of fact, most Christians now live in places like the global South and East, uh, Asia, South America, Africa. Now, I I put this on the screen and celebrate this because I want to notice the fact that even in a world filled with division and hate, in which all people, including all too often Christian people, fail to live out the reconciling love of God, there's still this beautiful reality that we can see being played out in human history that Jesus is drawing people to himself from every ethnic group, from every racial group, from every national group, and he's bringing us together in the one family of God where we can learn how to celebrate God's goodness and love one another. Now, as I mentioned, the rest of the psalm goes in, through and talks about different people in specific situations who were in big trouble, and they cried out to God for help, and he answered their prayer and rescued them. I really want to focus our attention on verses four through nine in which our theme of the wilderness comes to the forefront. So look with me at those verses. Some wandered in desert wastes. Desert wastes is another way of talking about the wilderness. And now the Psalm is going to describe people who were lost in the wilderness. Um, and we're supposed to think about the way that God showed love to these people in the wilderness. It says they wandered in the wilderness. That means they had no sense of direction. They they were lost. And the second half of the verse says, finding no way to a city to dwell in. So these were people without a home. No place to call their own. No place to rest. There's, there's some people watching this video who probably know the experience of loneliness, feeling like you don't have a place that you fit in, um, feeling like you don't have a, the opportunity to rest. And you can relate to the experience of these people in verse 4. Verse 5 goes on and say They were hungry and thirsty. That, that's characteristic of the wilderness. Last week we saw Jesus hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. The week before that we saw Elijah... Hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, this verse makes me think of Psalm 63, 1, which says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Now, this theme of soul thirst is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. And it's a powerful metaphor connecting that here to verse 5, which says, People in the wilderness were hungry and thirsty. You see... Thirst and hunger, those are the physical sensations of pain that we feel in the absence of the food and water that we need to give us life and energy so that we can survive and thrive in the world. And when the Bible talks about soul thirst, it's reminding us that we need more than food and water to really live. Our souls need the experience of the nearness of God and the loving kindness of God. And in this broken world, there are times where all of us feel so distant from God. And there's a pain that comes with that. But that pain is actually a grace. It's there to remind us what we need so we'll go get water, so we'll cry out to the Lord. And that's the situation of these people here. They're hungry, they're thirsty. Verse 5 says their soul fainted within them, which is a way of saying that they are physically and emotionally exhausted their strength has failed again there's probably some people watching this video who can relate to that you just feel weak and exhausted and hungry and thirsty and and then look what happens in verse 6 in this desperate situation it says of these people then they cried to the Lord in their trouble I want you to notice these people they are not self-reliant they can't rescue themselves they don't do anything heroic here. All they do is recognize that they are in a desperate condition. And when they recognize them, that, that recognition leads them to prayer. God, help us. God, rescue us. And look what God does. The second half of verse 6. And he delivered them from their distress. The next verse is tell how God delivered them. Verse 7. He led them by a straight way. Now that's the solution to the problem we saw in verse 4. They were wandering. They were lost. They had no direction. And now God is their leader and he's leading them on a straight path. They have direction. They have a leader now. And it says he led them by a straight way until they reached a city to dwell in. Now this is the point we're really celebrating this week. The wilderness is not forever. The place of pain and struggle is not forever. If we have a relationship with Jesus, He will walk with us through the wilderness, taking care of us, and He will lead us out of the wilderness to a city to dwell in. That's talking about the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's a place of rest. The city here solves all the other problems. They're not going to be hungry and thirsty anymore. Now they have a home, a place to dwell in. Now they can rest and regain strength. Verse 9 builds on this and says, For he that is God satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This verse reminds me of the beatitude of Jesus. When Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I think this verse is saying soul thirst is a, a, an essential and unavoidable aspect of discipleship. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we recognize that we need God's mercy. We need God to heal us and deliver us from the evil impulses, the self-destructive impulses in our own hearts. And we long for God's peace and justice to come heal our broken world. So that we don't have to see oppression and suffering and sickness and death all around us. And we're hungering and thirsting for Jesus to come back and heal the world. And Jesus promises those who trust in him and who are hungering and thirsting for his return and for him to heal their souls, they will be satisfied. They will experience peace and intimacy with God. Their souls will be healed and they will get to join Jesus in the new creation the promised land. Now I want to step back for a second and ask the question, verses 4 through 9, like who is this talking about? It says, some wandered in desert wastes. It doesn't say who. Now, I think probably we're supposed to think first about the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after God led them out of their slavery in Egypt. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They needed a home. They cried out to God and he led them into the promised land. But I think this psalm was probably written to, in a way that was designed to help God's people returning from exile to connect their experience to the experience of that generation that God led out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. In other words, when they were in exile, they were longing for their home. They were hungry and thirsty to experience the joy of worshiping God at the temple. And they cried out to God, and now he has brought them home. Now that then leads us to the the point that this, I think, is written in an evocative way that is kind of vague on purpose so that we can see our own experience here. And to help us think about this, I want to build on something that I briefly mentioned last week, which is that the New Testament helps us to see that the Christian life, the, the life of every individual Christian, has a certain correspondence to the experience of ancient Israel when they were led out of Egypt and, and through the wilderness and into the Promised Land. And I want to uh, put some artwork on the screen to try and help you think and imagine what I'm saying here. I want to talk about four stages of the experience of Israel in the Exodus. First, as we see depicted here, The Israelites were slaves. The the Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians, and they cried out to God for help. Now, many New Testament passages, including Ephesians 2, tell us that before we trusted in Christ, every single one of us was a slave to sinful impulses in our own hearts, and that that sin made us a, a slave to the destructive forces of evil in the world, so we cried out for help. And we needed to be delivered. the The second phase of the Exodus is when God raised up a deliverer, Moses, and and here we see Moses leading the people through the Red Sea. They, the, you remember the Egyptians were chasing down Israel, trying to make them slaves again, and the Red Sea stood between the Israelites and freedom. So God uses His servant Moses to part the Red Sea, so the people can pass through. Now, various New Testament passages connect the Christian experience of baptism to that experience of passing through the Red Sea. Just as Moses led the people out of slavery and through the waters of the Red Sea, where they could have died, but instead they were saved, so Jesus has come, a Savior and prophet and king like Moses, but greater than Moses because he is the Son of God. And he has come to lead us to freedom. And, and when we're baptized, it's like we're joining in that experience of Israel, passing through the waters. We're dying with Christ to our old life and rising with Christ to a new life. Now, after Moses leads the people out of out of slavery and through the Red Sea, where he's eventually going to take them in stage four is the Promised Land. Now, this picture is, is depicting... Uh, Israel on the edge of the promised land. And here we see the Israelite spies carrying back specimens of gigantic fruit showing us the fruitful abundance of the promised land. And the promised land sort of maps to the Christian hope that one day we will be with Jesus. First in heaven and then eventually when Jesus returns he's going to resurrect his people to live with him in a new creation. A new heavens and a new earth in which Will experience the peace and joy of Jesus forever, but you may have noticed we skipped a stage, because the Exodus story doesn't go straight from the Red Sea to the Promised Land. First, the people of Israel passed through the wilderness, and lot, lots of passages in the New Testament, uh, most notably First Corinthians chapter ten, perhaps, connect our experience of the Christian life between baptism and heaven with the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And, and what that is saying to us is we're going to experience the pain and the struggle of the wilderness until we get to go see Jesus face to face. But even though we can't see him now, Jesus is walking with us through this wilderness. And he will lead us out of the wilderness into the promised land. Now, I'm going to put a slide on the screen which helps you to keep track of those four stages that I just mentioned. And I want to ask you, to think for a second and perhaps pray to ask God to show you where are you on your spiritual journey. There's some people who are watching this video and you know that actually you do not have a relationship with Jesus right now. You're, you're probably watching the video because you're spiritually hungry and thirsty and you want a deeper spiritual life. But right now you feel like you're living in a way in which you are a slave to your own sin that There's destructive stuff in your life and you can't seem to get out of the guilt and the fear and the shame. And what I want to say to you right now is, here's the good news. Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us. If you will trust in Jesus and then take that next step of expressing your faith in Jesus by being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you can know that Jesus is going to forgive your sins and you're going to enjoy a relationship with Jesus. He'll walk with you through all the hard times of life, and you'll get to enjoy him forever. Now, there's other people watching this video that you're not there at stage one. You're actually at stage three. You've already trusted in Jesus. um, But your life is characterized by a lot of pain and struggle right now. And uh, what I want to say to you is here's the hope that we have today. The hope is that Jesus is going to walk with us through stage three. And he's even going to use stage three for our good Um, but he's not going to leave us there forever. The pain and the struggle and the loneliness and and the hurt and the temptation that we experience right now will pass. Jesus is going to lead us into his new creation. Now, this is glorious news. I suspect that some people watching this video have had the question come up in your mind, okay, this is great, but what's the whole point of stage three? Why doesn't Jesus just take us to the promised land now? It's a question that people frequently ask in the Bible. They pray things like, How long, O Lord, until you come back and heal our souls and heal our world? And th- the answer to that is, is mysterious. There, there are several scriptures that give us little hints and clues about why God's purposes that seem so strange to us might be. But what I want to do right now is just point out to you a little hint that this psalm gives us about a purpose that God may have for us in the wilderness season. Look with me at verse 33. It says this, He, that is God, turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste, because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land and the springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. Now these verses talk to us about two reversals. God is able to transform the wilderness into a fruitful land of abundant life. That's what we've been talking about. The grace of God that, um, that, that can lead us into the promised land. But these verses also say that God can turn a fruitful land into a dry wilderness. Now, this seems to be talking about the disciplining love of God that scattered Israel in their exile so that God could use that experience of pain to win back their hearts to himself for the sake of their salvation and their greater joy. Now this alerts us to uh, a fact that we need to keep in mind, which is that not only is it God's love that can lead us out of the wilderness, sometimes we might experience that the steadfast love of God leads us into the wilderness in a mysterious way that we may not be fully able to understand. But we can know that God will not waste those seasons of pain. Jesus can take that experience of the wilderness to open us up, to open up our hearts and souls so that we can experience intimacy with Christ in ways that we could have never imagined. Now, as I've been thinking about that this week, I uh, had a, a few lines from a poem come to my mind. If you'll bear with me, I need to let my inner English teacher out for a moment. Here's my well-worn copy of T.S. Eliot's complete poems and plays, and you can notice we got the same haircut and glasses going on, so I connect with Eliot on that level. I also want to ask you to uh, give your attention to some lines I'm going to put on the screen here. This is from the the fourth stanza of East Coker, the second of of the four quartets of T.S. Eliot, and in these verses, he is comparing Jesus to a surgeon. And listen to what he says. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Now in those first three words, the wounded surgeon, Elliot is talking about Jesus. Jesus was wounded on the cross for our sin. And he was wounded to heal us to heal our souls so he's a surgeon who's who's healing us and who was wounded so that we could be healed when it says he plies the steel the steel here is talking about the scalpel that really sharp knife that surgeons use to cut us open so they could heal us and that's why the second line verse says that the steel questions the distempered part that means there there's a sick part of our soul an infected part of our soul. And Jesus is cutting open that infection in order to, to put medicine in so we can be healed. That is a, a painful graphic image. But it's an image about our salvation. Look at the, uh, uh, the next lines. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art. The bleeding hands here refers to the hand of a, a surgeon. His hands get covered with the blood of the person he's cutting open. But it also refers to the fact that Jesus' hands bled when they were pierced with nails when he died on the cross for our sins. And it's saying, here we are, we're patients on the operating table of Jesus. And sometimes the way that he heals us hurts us. But what we're feeling is the sharp compassion of the healer's art. Now, I turn to that poem for just a second because I want to say whether we're talking about the metaphor of the wilderness or the metaphor of the surgeon here, what we're saying is God's steadfast love never fails us and he will not waste our pain. Sometimes for our greater joy, he leads us through seasons of pain so that he can get down to depths of our souls that might not have been accessible to him otherwise and heal us by his grace. Now with that thought in mind, I want to finish today by pointing you to another work of art, this time a visual art, This is a 17th century Prussian icon showing Jesus returning to raise from the dead those who have trusted him. So you see these two people are coming out of a coffin. And I want you to meditate on this picture for a minute and think about the fact that though right now you may be going through significant pain, Jesus is coming back to rise from the dead, everybody who trusts in him to to bring us back to life so that we can live with Him in a new creation, the promised land, perfect peace and joy and the presence of Jesus forever. If we've trusted in Christ, that is our destiny. And if we have a hope like that, we have nothing to fear. So I want to end today by praying that everyone who watches this video will trust in Jesus in a way that fills us with hope in a way that now allows us to live in the wilderness with courage. We can love people. We don't have to be slaves to fear because we know Christ is with us in the wilderness and he will lead us to the promised land. Let me say a prayer for you. God, I ask that everybody who's watching this video would experience your grace, that you would call us each to know Jesus in such a way that the hope of Christ would set us free from fear, so that we can live with joy and love. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.